Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. It's been 3,324 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 405 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and, beyond Bakhmut, are only capable of point and localized attacks. Second, we assess the Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut remains in a critical state and is fluid, with the defensive lines protecting the ground lines of communication, called GLOCs, those are supply lines, and the northern and southern flanks west of the railroad tracks. Third, we maintain that short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear, also known as seaburn, weapons, the Russian military will continue doing everything possible to capture Bakhmut, regardless of the cost. Fourth, Russian forces are experiencing a theater-wide shortage of non-precision artillery munitions, particularly anti-tank guided missiles, or ATGMs. Fifth, the risk of a nuclear accident due to the de-energization of Ukraine's electrical grid remains as long as the Russian Ministry of Defense continues to target Ukraine's power industry. And finally, we maintain that the Kremlin is actively interfering with the governments of Moldova and Georgia to derail the European Union membership accession process and destabilize their current governments. A quick content warning, this section includes frank discussion of atrocities, including sexual assault. One year ago yesterday, on April 3, 2022, after the Russian retreat, shelling restarted in Kharkiv and the city's suburbs. 33 people were injured in Kharkiv and the suburb of Derachi. In Sumy, webcams captured Russian military vehicles retreating through Burin and Bilopilia. The first satellite image evidence of mass graves appeared in Kherson, south of Chornobyvka. In Kakhovka, 
Russian troops fired live ammunition at civilians protesting against the occupation and living conditions. The city of Mykolaiv was hit by Russian missiles, damaging a fuel depot. Up to five Russian missiles hit fuel storage tanks in Odessa. In Donetsk, information from Mariupol was limited, with NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showing heavy fighting in the Kalmyuski district. Lithuanian journalist Mantas Kvedarevisius was killed while attempting to evacuate the city. In Zaporizhia, refugees from Mariupol, including children as young as 10, suffered from physical trauma after being raped and sodomized. A video released by Chechen soldiers showed them allegedly handing out humanitarian aid, which was Ukrainian and Western branded, indicating the goods were either confiscated from the Red Cross on March 31st or stolen from area stores. The combined forces of Russia, Chechen Akhmat, PMC Wagner, and Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics attacked Rubizhne, Popazne, Troitske, Avdivka, Marinka, and Krasnohorivka. Eight Russian missiles struck the Ukrainian airbase in Vasilkiv, south of Kyiv. Fuel storage and the Ukrainian Air Force's Aviation Air Defense and Warning Control Center were destroyed. East of Kyiv in Velika Dimirka, Ukrainian forces found the town destroyed, homes and buildings mined and booby-trapped, and civilian bodies. Investigators in Andreevka found evidence that civilians had been bound and executed, raped, and children murdered. In Dimitrivka, liberating Ukrainian troops found a roadside littered with dead civilians. In Dimitrivka, liberating Ukrainian troops found a roadside littered with dead civilians. A mass grave site was found in Bucha, with officials recovering 67 bodies on the first day of excavation. A torture chamber was found in Bucha with the bodies of 18 people, all shot in the head. The bodies of dead children were found in Demidiv, and residents of Kasatochi claimed Russian soldiers used them as human shields. In Vorzel, evidence was found that Russian forces threw smoke grenades into the basements of homes, shooting men, women, and children when they exited. It was discovered that Russian troops destroyed the historical summer home of Russian composer Tchaikovsky in Trostyanets. April 3, 2022 was a really bad day. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kharkiv. The Dvorichna and Kupiansk operational areas were stable. And that's really truly all I have for Kharkiv. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. In the Kremina operational area, fighting was very limited. It's unclear if this is due to Russia exhausting its combat potential, Bezdorizhia caused by very rapid snowmelt as previously forecast, or logistical problems causing ammunition shortages. Russian forces made an unsuccessful attempt to advance in the direction of Nevsky, according to the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and Russian mercenary mill blogger Wargonzo. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that Ukrainian troop positions on the edge of Dibrova were heavily shelled. Positional fighting between squad and platoon-sized units continued in the Serebryansky woods. In the Lysychansk operational area, Russian forces attempted to advance on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, and were unsuccessful. (laughs) 
in northeast Donetsk in the Siversk operational area, fighting continued east of Verkhnokamyanskye. Unrelated to today's fighting, another video showed fighting between Ukrainian armor and poorly equipped and trained Russian troops. While two anti-tank weapons are fired at close range, neither connects. The single Ukrainian T-72 main battle tank runs over the Russian trenches, burying Russian troops alive and leaving the already poorly constructed defensive positions in ruins. As with most of the photos and videos we reference here on the podcast, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Please be aware the video is graphic and some may find it disturbing. In the Bakhmut operational area, fighting was concentrated in the city, with PMC Wagner supported by Russian troops launching 20 attacks. Commander of the Ground Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Oleksandr Sirsky, traveled to Bakhmut and met with field commanders and troops. He dismissed claims made by PMC Wagner's head Yevgeny Prigozhin that the city had been captured, saying, quote, I've met with the soldiers and commanders who have shattered the myth of invincibility of the Wagnerites and Russian airborne forces. The enemy is growing weaker and is trying to cover up its failures with new fakes about the capture of Bakhmut. End quote. Daylight revealed that PMC Wagner's flag raising on the city's administration building was anticlimactic, with the building flattened during the fighting and the flag on a pile of rubble. Prigozhin doubled down on the claim the city was captured despite the ongoing intense fighting and praised the former leader of the Russian forces in Ukraine, General of the Army Sergei Sarovyakin, saying, quote, The decision to conduct the Bakhmut operation was made by the commanders of the PMC Wagner. General Sergei Sarovyakin was directly involved in its development and implementation at the time when he led the group and therefore I would attribute a huge number of decisions that were made to his account. End quote. Serhii Cherevatsi, a spokesperson for Operational Command East, or OKE, addressed a story in Reuters about the state of Bakhmut, saying, quote, Bakhmut is a Ukrainian city, and they, he means the Russians, have not seized anything and are very far from doing so, to put it mildly. They raised their flag over some public toilet, they attached their rag to the side of God knows what and said they'd captured the city. Whatever. Let them think they did it. End quote. Quick sidebar. In the interest of editorial fairness, that's some salty shade being tossed around. John Kirby, coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council for United States President Joe Biden, said Bakhmut, quote, is of great importance to the Ukrainians, and of course, we respect and understand that, end quote. But added that even if Bakhmut falls, quote, it will not change the dynamics of the battle from a strategic point of view, end quote. North of Bakhmut, there was only positional fighting near Orechovo-Vasilivka. In Bakhmut, heavy fighting continued in the central district near Educational Complex 11, the Rose District by Pivnichny Reservoir, and south of the Avantgarde Stadium. Assessment here. We significantly expanded the gray zone despite our map aligning with the current situation on the ground. We believe that Ukrainian forces are in a retrograde operation to the railroad tracks that separate the industrial and central districts from the western parts of Bakhmut. This logical defensive line will be easier to defend while reducing casualties Ukraine would suffer if commanders attempted to defend every building and home at all costs, 
as was the case in Severodonetsk. The biggest challenge to this theoretical strategy will be holding Russian forces in the Rose District and not allowing them to advance the length of Rose Street. There weren't any notable territorial control changes in the northern or southwestern part of Bakhmut along Kursunskoho Street. PMC Wagner and Russian VDV forces continued attacks on Ivanivske, which remained unsuccessful. In southwest Donetsk, in the Avdiivka operational area, there was significantly less fighting. Like in Kremina, it's unclear if this is due to Russian forces exhausting their combat potential, Bezdorizhia, or ammunition shortages and logistical problems. Oleksiy Dimitrashkivsky, director of communications for the defense forces of the Tavria Front Press Center, said, quote, The Russians are trying to attack our positions between Avdiivka and Marinka. These attempts do not stop. If we consider the statistics of last week, for instance, or even this week, we can see the occupier's ability to attack has weakened. They do not have the same amount of military equipment, and as they themselves report, they are on a diet when it comes to the shells for assault operations. End quote. Wargonzo reported that Ukrainian forces in Krasnohorivka were shelled. We didn't update the map, but the line of conflict likely continues to move back and forth up to a thousand meters a day in the operational area. A reliable report from a Ukrainian source indicated that Russian troops captured Kamyanka. We updated the map using terrain analysis based on this new intelligence. Russian troops with the 1st Army Corps continued their attempts to advance on Avdiivka from Kashtanova, Krutabalka, and potentially from Kamyanka. The Russian 1st Army Corps continued to target civilians in the city. A bus that had arrived for civilian evacuations was targeted by artillery, the driver was uninjured, but a civilian passenger was killed. South of Avdiivka, the 1st Army Corps continued attempts to advance on Sieverne, with new videos showing Russian forces suffering catastrophic losses at a tree line one and a half kilometers south of the village. While Russian forces cling to the line, it's being done at an exceptionally high price in equipment and personnel losses, so we have this region coded as a gray area. Fighting continued on the eastern edges of Pervomaiske with no change in the situation. In the Marinka operational area, Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that continued fighting was limited to the rubble of the central district of Marinka, with Russian mercenary mill blogger Rybar reporting Ukrainian forces on Druzhby Avenue. Please note, this is the same Rybar who wrote last week that the 1st Army Corps was west of the avenue. Trust us. We mean it this time. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Zaporizhia. In the Juliapola operational area, we adjusted the line of conflict north, moving it past the settlement of Dorosnyanka and coding the town as under Russian control. Our geolocation team confirmed that Russian troops are occupying homes in the center of the village. This is not a recent change in territorial control and likely happened in early March when reports of fighting were made in the region. 
The Zaporizhia Regional Military Administration reported 81 Russian fire missions along the entire line of conflict using tanks, multiple launch rocket systems, and artillery. In the morning, in Melitopol, the collaborator Maxim Zubaryev was severely injured by a car bomb. During the occupation, Zubaryev cooperated with the occupiers and was made the mayor of Akimivka. Local insurgents took credit for the blast. A very graphic series of pictures that our editorial team has decided not to share showed that Zubaryev lost his legs and possibly more in the blast. There were later reports that he was killed in the blast and that collaborator Yulia Gubanova was already named his replacement. Before her appointment as mayor, she was leading the Zaporizhia Occupation Government Ministry of Transport and Transport Infrastructure and the Ministry of Construction, Architecture, and Housing and Utilities. There was no update on the status of the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP. International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi is expected to travel to Moscow tomorrow to continue negotiations on the demilitarization of ZNPP. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OKS, reported there were nine vessels of the Black Sea fleet on patrol, including one frigate and two Kilo-class submarines, capable of launching up to 16-caliber cruise missiles in total. Insurgents reported the deployed vessels included the reconnaissance ship Priazovye and the cable layer Setsun. The Russian military continues to build defense structures in occupied Crimea, undoubtedly part of a goodwill program to encourage tourism and convince Russian citizens that all is well. A double line of trenches with half-height dragon's teeth has been created on both sides of the E-105 highway and near Lake Sivash, the Armyansk checkpoint, and Perekopsval. Russian forces fired 17 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones at Odessa, targeting the airport. 14 were intercepted over the Black Sea, and three struck the airport area. One video showed a large fire burning. On the Russian front, Alexander Bogomaz, Bryansk Oblast governor, said that a drone-delivered IED attacked the Russian military enlistment office in the Sevsky district. Bogomaz said there were no injuries and accused the Ukrainian armed forces of the attack. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The Secretary-General of NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, Jens Stoltenberg, said, quote, Putin is trying to use nuclear weapons to prevent us from supporting Ukraine, but we will not be intimidated, end quote. He repeated that NATO would continue to provide military support to Ukraine and would continue to strengthen its armed forces. By the time you're listening to this episode, Finland will have officially been made the 31st member of NATO. Marcin Pszczydacz, head of the International Policy Office of the President of Poland, announced that the first four MiG-29 fighter planes had been transferred to the armed forces of Ukraine. The nation plans to donate 20 of its 39 aircraft in the coming weeks. Norway and Denmark announced they would provide Ukraine with 8,155mm artillery rounds, and the United States is expected to announce a 2 to $3 billion military aid package today. The head of the U.S. House, which is the lower house of Congress, Intelligence Committee, said there was, quote, overwhelming, 
support to continue sending aid to Ukraine in the United States, despite vocal opposition from the far-left and far-right factions. U.S. Representative Michael Turner, a Republican from Ohio, said, quote, There are those on the left and on the right who question continued support or the amount of support. That will certainly be part of the debate, but overwhelmingly there is support for continuing aid to Ukraine so that they can continue to fight against this aggression of Russia. End quote. Representative Rich McCormick, a Republican from the state of Georgia, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, added, quote, For the first time, maybe ever, countries were talking about putting pressure on each other and holding each other accountable inside of NATO. There is a new sort of urgency that never existed before that I think you're seeing Europe actually step up to the plate like they've never done before. End quote. German arms producer Rheinmetall reported they're building a center in Satumare, Romania, to repair and maintain Western military equipment used by Ukraine. Construction has already started, and when completed, the facility will be able to service self-propelled howitzers, military trucks, Leopard 2 and Challenger battle tanks, Martyr infantry fighting vehicles, and Fuchs armored vehicles. Speaking of challengers, let's talk about the Russian military and mobilization. Russian military volunteer Mikhail Luchin started a fundraiser to buy drones for Russian troops. He had collected 25,000 U.S. dollars when his account got compromised and the hackers used the money to order sex toys, specifically butt plugs. Luchin claims he didn't realize the money was gone until boxes of sex toys ordered from China started showing up at his home. And reviewing the available transactional record, boxes will be coming for the next four to eight weeks. Quick sidebar, we here at Malcontent News do not kink shame, and yes, this is a real story. Tensions between Russian Orthodox Christians and Muslims is growing, over a plan to build a mosque in Moscow. Supporters of the Russian Orthodox Church protested at the potential build site, chanting, We are Russians. God is with us. This isn't sitting well in Dagestan, Tatarstan, and particularly Chechnya. So much so that a squad of Chechen soldiers was motivated to make a video, armed and in uniform, declaring, We will fight you. It does not matter to us who we fight with. End quote. Some assessment here. We have previously assessed that intersectionality between Russian nationalism and the Russian Orthodox Church, which has a stated goal of restoring racial purity of ethnic Russians, which aligns with the writings and speeches of 21st century Rasputin Alexander Dugin, was on a collision course with ethnic and religious minorities. The Kremlin's war for Russia's supposed survival does not include a seat at the table for religious or ethnic minorities or people who don't speak and read Russian. The Kremlin's internal and external disinformation efforts are creating armed factions that align with the ideas of orthodoxy and white nationalism, like the Russian imperial movement and a subset of Wagner's leadership, and the minority population. In using the enemy of my enemy is my friend politics, Moscow has inadvertently created heavily armed and combat-experienced ranks within these groups that won't be ignored. 
Daria Trepova, accused of delivering the bomb that killed Russian military officer and blogger Maxim Fomin, better known as Vladlin Tatarsky, was arrested and is in custody. In a video that shows in more detail, when Fomin is given a bust of himself, he knows Trepova and calls her by the name Nastya. She obliges his request, sitting just meters away. Video from the explosion in St. Petersburg allegedly shows Trepova leaving the building, apparently uninjured. She told investigators that she was unaware that the statuette was a bomb and that it had been given to her by an ethnic Tatar to deliver. The video of the aftermath of the bombing is not safe for work, and some may find it disturbing. Her arrest photo and a short video show that Trepova had cut her hair and she allegedly held tickets to travel to Uzbekistan. Online sleuths discovered she made post and greeting cards and other crafts and artwork sold in a pro-war shop in St. Petersburg. Her works included pro-war and patriotic materials starting in December, and at the time of recording, her Telegram channel, Fragments of Holy Miracles, was still public. During the autumn conscription that started on November 1st, Occupied Crimea missed its quota by 22%. Acting military commissar of Crimea, Yevgeny Kotusov, said the failure happened because the conscription period was reduced by one month, a massive outflow of citizens from occupied Crimea, a shortage of military registration and enlistment office staff, and, quote, sabotage of conscription measures by citizens of the Crimean Tatar nationality, end quote. He also complained about a lack of equipment and doctors to provide medical exams and organizations accepting bribes to help men evade the draft. Complaints from Russian troops about inadequate rations and no potable water are spreading. In a short video, Amobik claims that two platoons were provided with two cans of stew, three cans of zucchini caviar, and a box of dry rations meant to last 24 hours. Everything is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we have more positive news today. Russia released 12 Ukrainians, 10 soldiers, and 2 civilians. The exchange was part of a transfer that started in late March when Ukraine released five badly wounded Russian troops back to Moscow. The 10 Ukrainian troops were from the enlisted ranks and were captured near Bakhmut in areas of Opitne and Orikhovo-Vasilivka in the Donetsk region and near Kremina and Chervonopopivka in the Luhansk region. The two civilians were held for up to a year. One was from the village of Lipsi in the Kharkiv region and the other was from Mariupol. In geopolitical and economic news, the South African government has banned the sale of weapons to Poland to protect its relationship with the Russian Federation. The announcement was made shortly after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visited the African nation for bilateral talks. The ANC recently called Russia, quote, a long-standing ally and friend, with the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation of South Africa, Naledi Pandur, saying, quote, We have made it clear that Russia is a friend, and we have had cooperative partnerships for many years, including partnerships as we combated the apartheid regime. End quote. 
In another diplomatic win for Moscow, China changed its position on the Kuril Islands for the first time since 1964, when Mao Zedong declared that the four disputed northern islands belong to Japan. According to the Japanese newspaper Kyodo, citing a Chinese source, President Xi Jinping, during negotiations with Putin, said that China henceforth adheres to neutrality and quote does not accept either side end quote in the territorial dispute. Finally, after the two largest international exporters of Russian wheat withdrew last week, the French trading house Louis Dreyfus. Which traded Russian grain back in the time of Alexander II, announced they were closing operations. The departure of Louis Dreyfus will leave the Russian grain market without any Western participants. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.